We're going to be reading in Mark 10, 32 through 52. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and one, one the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want, to do, for, what, what do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You may be seated. All right. We've been saying this almost every week, but Mark is about discipleship. It's a roadmap for discipleship to Jesus, and in confusing times, this book has been, I think, just on the nose almost every week about what our posture should be, what we should be about, Um, and it's very easy for us to get... um, to fall just into someone else's agenda, someone else's vision for our life in our politicized culture. But I would just say this, and then I'll get into the study. Christianity is neither right, nor left, nor religious, but Christianity is a politic. And we see that clearly here this morning because Jesus wants to teach us about power. He wants to teach us about how we use power. 
And he is going to contrast with that with the way that the world uses it. And he isn't saying, oh, well, this particular party in the world and this... No, the world and his world. The kingdom of men and the kingdom of heaven. These are the only kingdoms that exist in God's story. And so we want to listen in as followers of Jesus to understand how we live in the way of Jesus, how we follow our master, and how we keep from falling into the way of the world, how we keep from following into the narrative that the world wants to sell to us. So as I said, these sections, Mark 8, 27, all the way, I believe, through 11, 11, are all about power, authority, leadership, and greatness, and how we wield those as followers of Jesus. And Jesus redefines for us what power and greatness look like and how they work in his kingdom. Now, let me just say this as a quick note before we get into our text. I think we often imagine that the career of Jesus was first humility then service, his sacrificial death, then contrasting that, his glory, his enthronement, his power and honor. But actually, the scripture would tell us that it's all power, right? Because he was eternal God at the right hand of the Father, and he humbled himself. He was at a place of power, and he shows us how power is to be used, not for his own selfish gain, Paul tells us, not for his own glory, but for the benefit of others. This is how power is to work in the kingdom of God. This is how power is to work for Jesus' followers. Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Paul, he says this, weakness as humans measure power and weakness, is the way God is and the way God operates in the world. To live in a way that corresponds to this reality may indeed be paradoxical. It may be awkward. It may, we may feel this tension. But above all, he says, it is faithful. It is true. However, to seek power as humans measure it is not just a mistake, it is to betray and renounce the gospel. It is important, therefore, to note that the New Testament does not understand the gospel as power and weakness, but power in weakness. And we see that because even when the New Testament epistles talk about Jesus's position now, that he has ascended to the right hand of power, that he is seated there waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. It often talks also about Jesus's work now is that he is ever living to make intercession for us. The prophets foretold that the Messiah would be a priest upon his throne. And when we think about a priest, a priest is essentially a servant to the people. He's the one who offers right worship and sacrifice to God on their behalf. And so Jesus, we see this in scripture, he's the servant king, he's the shepherd king. So that means as his followers, if we have power, authority, prominence, it isn't to be used for ourselves, but rather as followers of Jesus, power, leadership, authority are to be used for the benefit, for the blessing the service, the protection, and promotion of others, especially the weak, the poor, and the powerless. So let's get into our text. So Mark starts, verse 32, and it says, Now they were on the way up to Jerusalem. 
And Mark uses this term on the way or on the road. And Mark and Luke like to use this term to describe a life of discipleship to Jesus. It's a life of being on the way. It's a life of being on a journey. It's not a one and done moment. It's not that it just happens immediately. It is a lifelong journey of following Jesus. And this is how they describe it. It's a lifelong journey of discipleship, following Jesus wherever he goes. Now, Mark makes a strange note about those who follow Jesus being amazed and afraid. Why? Why would the disciples be amazed and afraid as they're on their way up to Jerusalem? Maybe, this is my opinion, maybe because like in the Gospel of John, the disciples understand the real threat of going to Jerusalem. The religious leaders have plotted to kill Jesus. They've threatened again and again. Herod has plotted to kill Jesus. But Jesus marches on to Jerusalem without fear of what he knows awaits him. And, and I think the disciples are just marveling at him. Look at Jesus' boldness. He is unafraid. Little do they know or understand what awaits him. But there is this awe for Jesus as they're going. Now, it's on the way, again, this disciple motif that Jesus once again gives the teaching about where this way is heading. Jesus' way is heading to the cross. And here, Jesus gives the most detailed description of his future sufferings and death waiting for him in Jerusalem. And it, again, there's three predictions in the book of Mark. This is the one that is most detailed. And because it's the one that's most detailed, what comes next is absolutely shocking. But what we see is that the disciples completely miss the way. They completely miss what Jesus is talking about. Because in light of this news, James and John just, you know, walk up to Jesus and their request that they will sit on his right hand and on his left hand when he comes into his glory. So this shows just immediately out the gate, they do not understand what's happening here. Jesus has just talked about in great detail that he is going to be beaten, that he's going to be betrayed, that he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be crucified and rise again the third day. And they're like, hey, listen, when we go to Jerusalem, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand? It is just like the most awkward time to ask Jesus for this favor, for this connection to his power. They have been missing all of Jesus' teaching about his suffering, his death, about them joining him in that suffering. They've missed all this. They are seeing the journey to Jerusalem as a march to glory because they are so shaped by their culture and their cultural narrative, because this is where the kings of old reigned. This is where the kings of old were, you know, the coronation happened, right? So they see themselves going up to Jerusalem. It's all going to happen. The kingdom's going to come. Jesus is going to sit on the throne, and we're going to reign with him. But Jesus, he responds to them that they do not know what they are asking. Now, again, the Jews had very specific ideas about who would reign on the right hand and the left hand of Messiah, but this is totally out of step with where Jesus' kingdom is 
or excuse me, where Jesus is going and what his kingdom is all about. And so Jesus takes this moment as a teaching discipleship moment for his followers and lays out his qualifications for ruling for power in his kingdom. And so look at the first qualification that Jesus brings up is this. He says to James and John, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Jesus here is speaking cryptically of his sufferings to these two disciples. Now they give Jesus a very sure answer that they are able. And Jesus agrees that they will drink the cup. They will be baptized with his baptism. So I believe that as we look at this, the first qualification for wielding power, authority in Jesus' kingdom is a fellowship or a share in Jesus's suffering. The qualification for power, for authority in the kingdom of God is sharing in Jesus' suffering. Paul, in his epistle to the Romans, he will make a similar statement, stating that if we suffer with Jesus, we will also reign with him. But there is no reigning with Christ apart from suffering with him. Now, here's the thing about sharing in Jesus' sufferings, sharing in his disgrace, that is a little difficult. We don't get to choose what those sufferings are. Wouldn't it be nice, right, if there was like a sufferings menu that you could just kind of order off of? Like, yeah, God, you can touch this and this and this, but these other things, these are non-negotiables. But again, Jesus is the master. He's the teacher. He's the Lord of all. And so as we follow him, as we share in his sufferings, my sufferings might be different than your sufferings, but I didn't get to choose what my sufferings are, and you don't get to choose what your sufferings are. So this idea sometimes that we compare our sufferings, it, it, this, this is not fair. We should not do this because we don't get to choose what those are. Jesus chooses those for us, and they are done so that we can share communion and fellowship with him. They are given to us in a way to know Jesus in a deeper and more intimate way. Unfortunately, we often push against those. We resist them, but what Jesus is actually offering us is communion. He's offering us his presence. And I have found personally that the times that I have suffered the most in my life actually have been the times where I have felt the presence of Jesus the most. Truly. I remember when we were in the hospital with Evelyn, you know, preparing for her heart surgery, and everything just felt so uncertain. And gosh, to, to just think about, you know, your child, your little baby undergoing heart surgery five days, six days after she's born. I mean, it was just like, it was a nightmare. And yet, I felt it was a nightmare. Yes, dear. There she is. It was a nightmare. And yet, and yet we felt the presence of Jesus walking with us in a way that we had never felt before. We felt his care we felt his nail-scarred hands holding ours, leading us forward, even into a, a situation that we did not want to go. And through that, we, we know his presence, we know his fellowship, because we have shared in his suffering. So we don't get to choose 
Our call is to follow Jesus wherever he might lead us. Now, though Jesus has told the disciples about their suffering, he tells them also, though, that the place that they have requested, sitting on Jesus' right hand and left hand, have actually already been prepared by the Father. And this is a moment where having read the whole book of Mark is very, very helpful. Because Mark, along with John, actually see that the cross is the moment when Jesus will be enthroned. Think about what happens there at that moment. Jesus is arrayed in purple, the color of the kings. He is crowned with a crown. And there at that moment, he is declared by Pilate, the Roman representative of the power of the world. This is the king of the Jews. And then he is taken to a cross and he is lifted up for all to see the king of the Jews written in every language known to man at that time, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic. There he is exalted and yet on his right hand and on his left hand are not James and John, but they are two thieves, two possibly uh, criminals who are being executed for insurrection. And this is why Jesus responds to James and John, you don't know what you're asking. And this is, this is this thing about Jesus, this is this thing about Scripture and the kingdom of God that is so backwards, that is so upside down, that it should offend us and confuse us to some degree for the rest of our lives. Here it is. The cross is where the glory is revealed. Because it is there that God turns worldly power and authority on its head. This is what the king of the world looks like. This is what real power This is what real power looks like. Giving his perfect life for his enemies. The cross is God's way of putting the world and ourselves to right. It challenges and subverts all the human systems which claim to put the world right. You think about the Pax Romana of the Roman Empire. You think about even our claims, liberty and justice for all in this country. No, 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 no. We see liberty and justice for all. We see true peace that Rome could only scratch at there at the cross. Jesus there subverts all human systems which claim to put the world right, but in fact only succeed in bringing about suffering, death, and a different set of humans on top. The cross calls into question all human pride and glory. And, remember what I said in the very beginning, this carries radical, dangerous, political meaning. Church, Christianity is neither right nor left nor religious, but it is a politic. How we wield power is a political question. How we live with one another and our differences is a political question. And Jesus and scripture address this again and again and again. The power that we have must be wielded in the way of Jesus. It must be done to give benefit, blessing, protection, and life to others. Now, Jesus takes the opportunity to gather the whole group of disciples and to speak once again about what greatness and leadership looks like in his kingdom. 
Discipleship to Jesus, I just want to say this, it happens with him. It happens on the way, on the road, as we be with him, listen to him, take stock, and adjust our thinking, our posture, and actions to his way. Therefore, we need to be with Jesus. Because again, it's not a one and done. It's a journey. It's a road. It's a continual work that he's wanting to do, transforming us in his way, in his image. It's a conversation with Jesus, and it's slowly him tweaking these little things in our life to reflect more and more his image, more and more his posture, more and more his grace. That's what discipleship does. That's what it is. It's the road. Now, I think it's crucial for us to note that Jesus here He affirms the one who wants to become great. Listen to this. He says here, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, but among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be great or leader must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. This is, again, crucial to note because we get this wrong a lot in the church. Jesus affirms the one who wants to be great. Jesus affirms the one who wants to be first in the kingdom of God. Okay? So God is not down on ambition. In fact, he put it in you. Ambition is a good thing. It's about... Actually, I would say it it is an echo of the Imago Dei because we were created for greatness. And C.S. Lewis, in his writings, he talks a lot about this. Human beings often settle for less than the greatness that God intends for us. We settle for what the world offers us when God is offering us in Christ, through Christ, to rule and reign over the cosmos. Now, of course, we see this from the beginning, right? God creates man and woman in his image, and he invites them into this holy partnership to rule and reign over the earth. And in some translations of the Bible, we see clearly that Adam is and Eve are king and queen over the world. So is God down on ambition? No. Is God down on greatness? Absolutely not. He made us for it. But since he made us for it, he gets to define what greatness looks like. And that's what Jesus does here. He wants to redefine for his disciples, for us, what is honorable. He wants to redefine for his disciples, for us, what is worthy of praise in his kingdom. Now, think about this for a moment, you guys. The fascinating thing is these group of disciples most likely hate Herod. They can't stand him. He's a sellout to the Romans. He doesn't care about his people. They hate Caesar Augustus, right, and just all of his power plays and everything going on with the Roman Empire. They hate all this, and yet... They aspire that same kind of power. They aspire to it. And it takes Jesus to pull this back and be like, You're not, this is not how it works in my kingdom. You're not going to lord it over others the way that the Gentiles do. 
Jesus redefines it for us, and he says that greatness in his kingdom is service. Now this, of course, in that day and age was unheard of. This is mind-blowing. Of course, there are books now written on this kind of stuff, but it's because of a Judeo-Christian lens that the Western culture has looked through, dimly, but has looked through, uh, in order to define some of these things. But in that day and age, this was completely unheard of, that someone great, that someone in authority would serve others. But this is what Jesus says. Greatness, being first, you must be servant of all. You must live an others-oriented life. You must live at an at-your-service posture with others. And Jesus, of course, he lays all this out in the Sermon on the Mount. You think about just even the word meekness, right? It is power under restraint. It is wielding power correctly. That's what meekness is all about. But he also talks about humility and mercy and suffering and justice and righteousness and peacemaking and pureness of heart. These are all characteristics that must go into wielding power in the kingdom of God. This is how Jesus and Jesus' people do power. The posture of leaders and rulers in God's kingdom is to be servant of all. And this is regardless of someone's worth, someone's societal honor, regardless of someone's color, their class, their politic, or their sex. The Bible just blows all of that out of the water. It doesn't say, oh, your inner group of Christians who agree with your political stance, you serve and be kind and humble with those people, but everyone else, you just give them the finger because they're wrong. That's not how this works. No, it is the servant posture, and I'm sorry that I just flipped everybody off. I did not mean to do that. <laughs> Hopefully the children's eyes were averted. Um, But this is the way it works in God's kingdoms. Of course, we humans, we think of leaders or of those who are great being the ones who are served. This is the way it works in all human cultures. It's the one at the top who, does, uh, who is supported by everyone else, waiting on them to do their will. But Jesus' kingdom, if you will, is a you know, kingdom diagram is like an upside-down triangle. The one who leads or is on the top is actually the one who is servant of all. It's completely backwards and upside-down. And then finally, Jesus puts the capstone on this by speaking of Jewish theology's ultimate ruler, the Son of Man. There in Daniel chapter 7, it says, One like the Son of Man is brought on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. And this Son of Man, this human-like figure, is given power and authority and a kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. And Jesus says this, The long-awaited King of Israel, the one to whom Yahweh will grant the kingdom, the power, and the glory, the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, this great one will exhibit his greatness not by being served, but by serving and giving his life as a ransom for many. And so when we think about the cross, this is Jesus' ultimate act of service as king to his people. He gives his life in exchange, not just for his people, but for the life of the world. 
the rebellious world, every color, every creed, every kind. That is his act of service. That is his servant posture. And he calls his people, follow me in the way. Follow me in this way. Now, the last thing I want to talk about before we close, we're almost done here, is the next story. The next story seems like it is not part of what's going on here, but I would argue that it is what's going on. It is closely connected with this story. We have the situation where Jesus enters Jericho. And, of course, the crowds are out, and they want to see him, and they want to be touched by him and healed by him. And there's a blind man named Bartimaeus. His name means son of Timaeus, which is a really weird thing that Mark does, because he's like, oh, uh, his name is son of Timaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. It's like, yeah, you told us that twice. I, I don't know what's going on there, but it's this guy, and he kind of has no, not kind of, he has no honor. He has no societal honor. He has no power. He has no place even in this this community. But he hears that Jesus is coming. It's the only time in Mark that we hear this title, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And we see what the crowds do. The crowds are close to Jesus. They've got a front row seat to Jesus. They're close to the power. What do they do? Shut up. Shut up. He doesn't care about you. Be quiet is what they keep on saying to him. Stop it. He doesn't care about you. But he just keeps hollering. I just imagine this guy like, Jesus, son of David. He was just like getting so loud and obnoxious. People are just like, come on, Bartimaeus, be quiet. And Jesus says, call him and bring him to me. And this is this fascinating thing. We just saw that the sons of Zebedee have requested of Jesus something. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, the son of Timaeus requests something from Jesus. And Jesus asks him the same exact thing. What do you want me to do for you? The sons of Zebedee request power and authority, greatness as the Gentiles seek it. And Bartimaeus requests mercy. Have mercy on me, son of David, and heal me. One request is corrected and redirected. The other one is granted, and we're told that Bartimaeus is brought on the way with Jesus. He joins his band of disciples. He joins him as a discipleship on the way. I believe this story is a parable. It's a picture of what Jesus wants disciples to do. He says, listen to me. Listen to what I'm saying. Now watch me do. Jesus, the Davidic king, the son of David, does like David does. He takes the Mephibosheth, the deposed king's grandson, who's lame in his feet, and he seats him at his banqueting table. Jesus, the son of David, takes Bartimaeus, this nameless, shameful, powerless, lame man. He's voiceless. And he gives him voice, he gives him face, he gives him honor, and he brings him into his band of disciples. And I believe what Jesus is saying to all who are reading, all who are listening, go and do likewise. This is how we wield power in the kingdom of God. We look out for 
the shamed one. We look out for the one who has no societal honor. We look out for the one who has no power. We look for the one who has no voice. And with power, Jesus' power, we give voice to the voiceless. We give honor to the shamed. We give name to the nameless. This is how Jesus is calling us to follow him in his way. Follow his example. Mark 10.45 shows us how Jesus' death is service on behalf of others. I said this already. He serves humanity by taking their burden, their debt, our debt upon himself in order to free us to God. So we think about this. It's incredible that Jesus, who's the creator to whom all power and glory belongs, the rightful king of the cosmos, is also the servant. The one who gives himself sacrificially for the life of the world. Again, as I said, that's all, regardless of honor, worth, class, color, sex, politic. Therefore, power and authority in God's kingdom as defined by Jesus is the opposite of the way our world does power. And he is calling us to follow him in that way. And what an incredible and tangible way that we are invited to put the life of Jesus on display. Right? The one who went low so we could be lifted high. The one who was shamed so we could be honored. The one who was made poor so we could become rich. The one who became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's what he did. That's ex- this exchange that he made with humanity. And so then this means, church, that whatever money, opportunity, stewardship, authority, or power that we have been given, we are to use it not for ourselves, not for our own comfort, not on our, for our own benefit, but that we might serve others and particularly serve the least and the lowest of society. And in this way, we follow Jesus, the rabbi. In this way, we are more conformed to his image. And so the question is, will we follow Jesus on his way of self-sacrifice? Will we do it today? Will we do it with the opportunities that are before us, with our spouse, with our children, with our roommate, with our coworker, with the person at the market, with our political opposite? Because we can imagine that we are Jesus' followers, but we can only live by faith in the moment that we are living in. With the opportunities that are before us, with my neighbor who is either great or obnoxious, right? We can only live by faith now. Oh, I'm going to live by faith then. No, faithfulness. Faithfulness is a journey. And God is calling us each moment to live out that servant posture in the way of Jesus. That's his invitation. To wield power for the benefit of others. And so our challenge for this week is to slow down, to see our the ones that we would not give honor to, see the ones that society does not give honor to, to be aware of the least, to be aware of the outcast among us, and to give honor, to give deference 
to give kindness and goodness to those individuals. So that is our challenge for this week, this week as we seek to live out our discipleship to Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, which is to open our ears that have grown deaf because we hear, because we're human, because we are sinful and broken. We hear what we want to hear. Open our ears to hear your voice that is neither not right nor left, nor religious, but is a different politic, a different way of living. Open our eyes because we tend to be blinded to the things that we don't want to see. Open our hearts that we would receive this commissioning, this calling to follow Jesus in this specific way. And Holy Spirit, transform us as we enter again this week in this challenge to this holy partnership of what it means to join you in putting your kingdom on display by putting Jesus, our King, his life, his service, his posture on display. And so we ask all that in the name of Jesus. Amen.